Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1, first verse of your Bible. <coughs> this morning we begin a uh, study of this first book of the Bible. We know this book as Genesis, which means becoming. The becoming of the world. The becoming of the human race. The becoming of the chosen people of Israel. The Jews knew this book as Bereshit, simply the Hebrew word that means, in one word, in the beginning, the first word of the book. We need to study Genesis, for without a clear understanding of this first book of Holy Scripture, you cannot understand the rest of the Bible. You don't know where man came from. You don't know what's gone wrong with the world. You don't know what God's doing in the world. Indeed, you don't even know who God is. And if there's confusion in our own minds, how will we ever address gross ignorance that is characteristic of our day? For gone are the days when we might assume that the world around us has any elementary knowledge of these basic categories of biblical truth. This is the challenge with, with, with which uh, Dr. James Boyce prefaces his own study of Genesis, which I'm deeply uh, indebted to. Let me read uh, some of his preface for you. He says, several years ago, Dr. D.A. Carson wrote a masterful analysis of our postmodern world and an exploration of how Christians can speak of the grace of God in Christ to a generation that has rejected the very categories with which we speak. Our contemporaries have no place for the Bible's truth claims. And if we tell them that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives, well, why not? They're worth it. They deserve it. In fact, they have some wonderful plans for their lives, too. And as far as Jesus being the Savior is concerned, well, that's all right, too, as long as we do not deny that they're equally valid saviors, and as long as we do not maintain that Jesus has any meaningful claim on their lives. What Carson argues is that in order to be effective witnesses to Christ in our age, we will have to go back to the Bible and learn to present our case as the Bible itself does. We will need to begin with the doctrine of God as the Creator, explaining who He is and what He's done, explain how human beings were created in God's image and are therefore responsible to God for what they do, how we have fallen from that high calling and intent, how we now need someone to rescue us from ruin. We must trace the narrative line of the Bible through Abraham and Moses and David and the other great Old Testament figures up to this climactic appearance and the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, we must recognize that our world is as spiritually ignorant 
and pagan as the world into which the gospel of God's grace first came. All of which is to say, there is no better or needful time for anyone to be studying the book of Genesis than the present. And so let's uh, begin in this morning, after uh, many hours of working on Genesis, uh, we're prepared to go one verse with you. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I have no clever things to say about this most profound verse of Scripture. I only ask you to meditate on it with me for a few moments until your minds are lost in wonder and your hearts are bowed in adoration. In the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning. First, our text tells us there was a beginning. What sounds so simple has not always been accepted at all. For generations, the prevailing view of science has been that the universe has always been and will always be. Materialism, we might call that. Only in fairly recent years, with the development of the Big Bang Theory, has science set forth anything like a moment of creation. And even now, there's still popular assumption that the world has always been. But God says there were beginnings. We're not told when. We cannot conceive of time before the beginning of nothing. But make no mistake, there was a moment when the universe began. To quote Dr. Boyce, these words already take us beyond the farthest point that can be, be viewed by science. Science can take us back to the Big Bang, to the moment of creation, but if that original colossal explosion obliterated anything that came before it, as science suggests, then nothing before that point can be known scientifically, including the cause of the explosion. And so God reveals to us something of the beginning. And still in that beginning is the suggestion of an end, a purpose, a goal, a consummation of what has been begun. So it's no accident that, as, that the Bible, which begins with the creation of the heaven and earth, ends with the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. A new creation in which the ancient beginnings will find their fulfillment. That's all true because of the second thing we want to notice. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. 
The late distinguished physicist Arthur Compton once said, these words are the most tremendous ever penned. In the beginning, God. For you see, these words imply several profound things about God, things which lift our understanding of him out of this mundane world of our experience and present him as he is, as he sees fit to present himself to us. Let me mention three things. First of all, these words, in the beginning, God, silence an increasingly popular view of God, that, that pantheistic, new age view of God, that he is somehow part of his creation, part of the universe, that, that he is some spirit of all living things, or that he is some universal energy. The Bible says, oh no, oh no. In the beginning, already, God. If God was there in the beginning, before the creation of the world, then he is not part of that creation. He's not mixed up in his own creation. He is distinct. He is set apart. He is separate. He is transcendent from everything in the universe that he has made. But you see, when you talk about God these days, that's not necessarily the God that people assume. Your hearer may not uh, assume such a person at all, but in fact may have completely redefined God along the lines of this modern paganism. In the beginning, separate from the creation, before the creation, before anything in the universe, God. Secondly, this verse demonstrates that God is self-existent and self-sufficient. This is something we may have difficulty getting our minds around. For everything we know is dependent upon someone else or something else. Nothing we know exists in itself complete. Oh, but not God. God exists in himself in perfect completeness without need, without want, long before anything was created. Sometimes we Christians ourselves deny this fact. You might hear someone say, well, you know, God was lonely, and so he made us for companionship. Or you might hear someone say that God has a need to express his glory, and so he decreed to create the elect and to create the reprobate to express his glory. Well, God did create us for fellowship with himself, and he did express his glory in his divine decrees, but not because God needed anything. He was. He is. He will always be self-existent and self-sufficient. We know no one like him. Then thirdly, this passage makes it clear that God is eternal. He has always been, will always be. Before the beginning, already, there was God. Moses wrote in another place, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, 
before you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And sure enough, when we read the original account, there he is in the beginning already, before the universe already, eternal God. I tell you, this one is like no one you can ever imagine. Expand your mind to its furthest limits, and he is there. Go back before the beginning, and he is there. Before there was a universe, he is there. And he is transcendent. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is eternal. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is immense. He is infinite, unlimited in all his ways. He is immortal. He is unchangeable. This God with whom we have to do. All around us, people are recreating God in an image of their own imagination. But it's self-deception. For in the beginning, before time began, before there was a creature in the universe, indeed, before there was a universe, Already in the beginning, God was the I am. Finally, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We speak of people being creative or creating something ourselves. Oh, but this is all different. When we speak of our own creations, we are speaking of making or forming or manufacturing something. But this word, create, is used only of God himself. It is never ascribed to human. God creates the wind. He creates miracles. He creates a new heart in us. And first of all, God created the heavens, and the earth. As one writer explained, his creative act involves giving existence to something that did not previously exist so that it is not formed from materials already in, at hand. Which is exactly what Hebrews 11.3 says. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And indeed, it's the whole universe that's in view here. Heaven and earth is a Hebrew way of saying everything, or sometimes heaven and earth and sea, everything. It's equivalent to our word universe. In the beginning, God created everything that is. Now before we close, what do we make of this account of God's creation? Is this fact or is this fiction? Is this myth or is this history? How should we take it? 
many modern scholars, even Christian scholars, are determined to reduce these things to mythology. The more radical ones will admit that the text claims to be history, they just dismiss it as untrue based on what they perceive as the ignorance of the primitive writers. Of course, they meant to write history, they just didn't know what they were talking about. Others hopelessly try to hold to the truthfulness of scriptures by denying that the text ever intended to be history, that it ever intended to tell us the truth, any facts. But clearly, the rest of the Old Testament, the Psalms that speak of the creation along with other things, the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament refers to these creative events as facts, historical accounts of some kind. And when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament writers, such as Peter and Paul, make their arguments with the assumption that the things written in these first chapters of Genesis are true. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself refers to how God created things in the beginning, events described in these first chapters. He treats them as trustworthy facts. You see, you cannot escape the fact that the Bible claims to be presenting history in some sense. Now, much of the denial of the historicity of this account is based on the assumption that Genesis is parallel to some ancient Babylonian creation myths. But an actual comparison of those shows that there's no comparison. Indeed, C.S. Lewis challenged those who thought Genesis was, Genesis was a myth to go actually read some myths. He's one whose business was mythology, and Lewis knew that they're not the same. And so I will argue, as we study Genesis 1 and 2, that God intends to give us facts, not fiction. History, not mythology. Reliable records, not fictitious poetry. Oh, I know this doesn't answer all of our questions. It doesn't answer my questions. And yes, we have to examine the implication of the literary forms that are used here. And I admit that such an approach presents us with huge problems of how to correlate our scientific study with what God has revealed as his truth. But to accept anything less than the Bible's own view, than the Lord Jesus' own view of these things, the view that we have here some factual account, to accept anything else is to turn God's word on its head and make it bow at the feet of modern opinion. One thing we cannot do, for it speaks of things that are beyond our knowing. What arrogance to assume that it doesn't speak truth. And so the rest of chapters 1 and 2 will raise many questions about what took place next. What became of the original 
creation spoken of in verse 1? How was it that the earth was without form and void? What does that mean in verse 2? How are we to understand the creative days that are described beginning in verse 3? Oh, we won't resolve all these things. God created heaven and earth, and then some things happened that we are told in the most sketchy kinds of language. But let's get this truth of verse 1 firmly in our minds first. As Arthur Pink wrote in his book, Gleanings in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that is all that we have recorded concerning the original creation. Nothing is said which enables us to fix the dates of their creation. Nothing is revealed concerning their appearance or inhabitants. Nothing is told us about the modus operandi of the divine architect. We do not know whether the primitive heaven and earth were created a few thousands or many million years ago. We are not informed as to whether they are called into existence in a moment or whether the process of their formation covered an interval of long ages. Their bare fact is stated that in the beginning God created the heavens and earth and nothing is added to gratify the curious. This opening sentence of Holy Writ is not to be philosophized about, but is presented as a statement of truth to be received with unquestioning faith. And we might add, and to move us to humble worship and obedience. Now we will know that's the case if we only think of why it is that God would have written this and given this to his people. We know this was given in the time of Moses. Then Israel was a ragtag band of nomads wandering in the desert, recently emancipated from slavery, in Egypt, but not yet even in a land of their own. And while they were called to believe in Yahweh, to be his chosen people, the more established, more powerful, and seemingly more sophisticated nations around them had long traditions of allegiance and worship of gods identified with their own lands and identified with the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals and the rivers, every other kind of created thing. As we can learn from simply reading the accounts of those days, the pressure to join in this pagan idolatry was overwhelming for these people of God. But here in Genesis 1, God revealed truth which would enable his people back then and now today to withstand the onslaught of idolatry and to be faithful to him. Here he makes clear that he alone is God the Holy One, eternal, transcendent over all things. Indeed, all things, including all those things worshipped by the nations, the most formidable and impressive parts of the universe, all those things are made by His hand for His glory. Therefore, He, and He alone, is worthy to be worshipped. He alone is to be obeyed. And folks, that truth which drove God's revelation to himself, of himself to ancient Israel, as recorded in these verses, that truth continues to inspire praise in heaven 
as recorded in the book of Revelation, as all living creatures and the 24 elders of God's people fall down before him, laying their crowns at his feet and saying, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. O oh Lord, <coughs> we cannot fathom anything back to the beginning and before the beginning. Lord, you are beyond our comprehension. And so, not surprisingly, we are tempted to reduce you to something we can understand. <coughs> something like ourselves. Something like the things we see and know in this world. Lord, I pray that as we study this first book of your great revelation to us, that we would see you as the creator who is like nothing in your universe, who is beyond everything in your universe. Lord, may we see you as you are and proclaim you as you are. May we draw the lines of distinction between the God that you, who you are, who, you, who has revealed yourself to us, and the gods that we hear spoken of, gods of this world that people give your name to, Lord, teach us to think with you at the center of all of our thinking, for you alone are worthy of such a position. Amen.